0: To the responsibility to protect.
1: An atrocity prevention. Kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable.
0: Atrocity crimes. Timely and appropriate actions.
1: Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Centre for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streitfeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Centre. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Today, I'm joined by Samuel Monet, Executive Director of Justice Rapid Response. Thank you for joining us today, Samuel.
0: Thank you for having me, Jacqueline.
1: You know, one of the reasons we invited you to join us today is to learn more about the really unique and powerful work that you do for survivors and victims through Justice Rapid Response. Um, For those in our audience who may not be familiar with your organization, can you give a little background on the history and and purpose of Justice Rapid Response?
0: Yeah, of course, with pleasure. I mean, we, we work every day with the team with a lot of passion. So, I'll try to give you a sense of uh, what we're doing and who we are so justice rapid response is an intergovernmental initiative it's been creating quite a while ago like 12 years ago um, and the idea was really to provide the international community with the capacity to deploy justice and human rights experts and professionals to support um, international uh, investigation into international crimes and grave human rights violations. The idea was really to provide that capacity upon, upon short notice so that this investigation are um, more professional, more efficient, and down the line would provide a better uh, justice outcome. So really every day we work with the idea that victims and survivors of international crimes and grave human rights violation uh, must have access to justice. Uh, in a way that contributes somehow to peace, and so our mission is to uh, partner with international, national, and civil society organizations by providing them with uh, this uh, specialized expertise to assist them in the investigation of those crimes and violations and promote the access uh, to justice of victims and survivors. Um, that's that's what we are doing uh, every day, and uh, just to give you maybe one example, um, so. We have been requested a few years ago by the prosecutor in the Gambia who was in charge of investigating some of the violations that took place there during the Jajayame era. And he had an investigation whereby they had found a number of human remains. They had difficulties to identify those human remains and define the cause of death. So this person uh, approached us, approached Justice Rapid Response, telling us, uh, I would like to have uh, expert support to identify these remains and to define the cause of death because that's a critical part of the investigation that I have to conduct. So what we did is that we looked into the roster that we have built, the roster of experts that is uh, 700 experts strong today, and we found a number of profiles that could match the request of that prosecutor. And we deployed uh, a group, uh, a small team of forensic experts who could work with the prosecutor locally, define the cause of death. Define the identity of the victims, and that was a critical piece of evidence that was then brought to the trial where the experts of justice rapid response could also uh, testify as expert witness. And that's one example where we support national justice authorities. Uh, We have also requests coming from international justice and human rights bodies. And also from civil society organization, and I hope we'll have the occasion later on to speak about the critical role that they are playing increasingly in that field of justice and accountability for those crimes.
1: Excellent. I think that roster of experts and the speed with which you can bring people together to assess the situation makes justice rapid response really unique in this field.
0: I mean, the, 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 there is one one thing maybe I could add if you if you wish which is really um, a characteristic or a big value that we have in the organization. We do not think that uh, the idea of a dumping or launching uh, any expert in a situation would actually help that situation very much. So when we are creating the roster of experts, we are taking great care in making sure that roster is gender balanced that the roster has also a diversity in terms of the geographical origin of the different experts, so that we can really pick with the partners that is requesting the expertise, the profile, the cultural background, the language, that's going to make them work well together. And there is also a really intense work that we do with the expert about sending them and putting them in a mindset of working in a mentoring format or a peer-to-peer format with their counterpart in Colombia, in the Gambia, in Guatemala, where they would work together, combining their expertise, coming from different uh, uh, sources and background and experience, to make case-based work advance for justice.
1: That's incredible. And I I know you personally have a background as an international law expert and... Uh, experience working at the International Committee of the Red Cross. How has your career and experience shaped your views on the importance of international human rights and humanitarian law? Uh, I
0: think you're right. I mean, I I started as a lawyer in Switzerland, but I really uh, cut that uh, career short really quickly because I really wanted to work uh, abroad and in the humanitarian sector. So between 2000 and 2015, I've been working with the International Committee of the Red Cross uh, in the field, in, in many different conflict situations, starting in Afghanistan, finishing in Mali. Uh, this this was uh, my career. And the job that I was doing there for the ICRC, or the International Committee of the Red Cross, was to document with my team's violation of international humanitarian law, with the idea that this documentation was, would serve Uh, into the confidential dialogue we'd had with all the parties to the conflict to try to stop violations against civilian population, against detainees, etc. So I was confronted very early on and very directly with those violations. And I was working in the humanitarian sector at the time, so justice was not my my responsibility or, or the work that I was doing. But by talking to the victims and survivors that I was meeting during those missions in different countries... Their thirst for justice and for accountability was extremely apparent to me. So when I started to work with justice, rapid response, it was something very natural uh, that uh, for me, this dimension of the needs of victims and survivors is absolutely critical and crucial. And there are two sort of situations that I keep with me every day, almost uh, from that career that I can maybe uh, explain here. I started my work in Afghanistan in 2000 when the Taliban were still in charge of the country. So my job at the time was to really negotiate with Taliban commanders access to their detention facilities so that the ICRC could go and visit uh, prisoners and detainees under the Taliban. And a few months later, the 9-11 happened, the US-led coalition invaded Afghanistan, and the same commanders I was negotiating with, I was actually visiting in detention because they were uh, they had been made prisoners by the Northern Alliance, which was uh, the one of the parties to the conflict and they were actually in really harsh condition of detention, so my job was to protect these prisoners from violations and From that experience, really the notion that there is nothing really black and white in an armed conflict, and that from one day to the next you can become either a victim or a perpetrator made me realize that the job of justice and international justice was really challenging because it has To do somehow a determination about who are the victims and who are the perpetrators and so the notion that this justice must be impartial like looking at all the violations professional in the way they collect evidence and really victim centric is like an evidence for me like something that is obvious and maybe the the, the second uh, lesson that i learned or something that is really deep within me when i think about those situations, was this woman i was talking to in georgia in 2005. so she was a she was she she's probably still a mother of a soldier who had disappeared in the Abkhaz georgian war in 1992 and her, she had no news of her son so her son went to fight he disappeared there was no um, no indication about what happened to him my job at the icrc at the time was to try to account for these missing persons put in place mechanisms to sort of bring some answers to those families And that mother was telling me, look, I have kept the room of my son exactly the way it was and occupied in my house, waiting for him to come back. And this was like, what, 13 years later. And then, of course, her other children had grown up and left the house. So her family was putting pressure on her to leave that house, which was too big and too expensive. But she refused to do so because she said, if my son's returning he won't find me because I won't be at the same address anymore. So it was really a heartbreaking story because the chance of finding that son again were really minimal so many so many years later. And what I learned from this is that even when the hostilities are over, even when the fighting starts, or even when the media attention over a situation sort of disappear, the suffering of the victims and the survivors continues year after year. And even if sometimes the justice is slow to happen, it's absolutely critical that it happens and this the work all the work that we do including today at justice rapid response is about them is about the victims and the survivors bringing them some answers some truth some reparations so I, I keep carrying that that situation and that woman with me everywhere when i think about the victim centric approach and why we are actually doing that work
1: that's really really powerful memories to to help motivate what you do every day. Um, You know, I'm wondering, in practice, um, how does the work of Justice Rapid Response support the pursuit of justice for survivors and victims around the world? Um, and maybe a good place to start on that is, is to ask, how do you choose to mobilize and engage on a given country situation?
0: We are very much responding to requests, right? The requests are coming to us. We need that expertise. The roster is equipped with all the kind of professions that you need from witness protection experts to, to uh, psychosocial support experts, investigators, etc. And so when we receive a request, we would systematically look at it with the team based on four criteria that we believe are protecting us from doing politicized or being instrumentalized, uh, politicized work or, or being instrumentalized. The f- and, and I will just run you through them and then give you an example of when we decided not to support a request, right? So the first criteria is, is the request in, in conformity with international law? So is there anything Within what the expert is going to do that might contradict international law, including, for instance, as an example, if the experts take part in an investigation that might lead to an unfair trial, that might lead to a death sentence. Uh, that's something that we would absolutely stay away from. The other things is the the, the request must not be political in nature. Uh, we know by definition that anything on the international scene can have a political flavor, but we try to stay away from requests that will try to blame a political party or look at the situation from only one perspective and not investigate all the, the violations in a given situation. The third element is the security of the expert and the witness and the victims that uh, will be interacting with the experts or will be part of the investigation. And finally, the fourth criteria is more about our mandate. There is a need for search capacity and expertise to advance justice for victims and survivors. So let me give you one example where we decided not to go ahead. I won't name the country in particular for uh, confidentiality reasons, but we have been requested to provide investigative expertise to mentor a national human rights mechanism in a Middle Eastern country. And when we started the assessment, we realized that this mechanism had indeed the legal background for the mandate, and they had the mandate to do their work, but they were composed only by one party, one ethnic group represented in the country. They didn't have access to a big part of the country, which was not uh, um, under their, um, they had no access essentially. And then there was a lot of questions about if they conduct interviews with victims, where are these uh, interviews and information going to go? Who is gonna be owning them? Who is going to be making sure that the identity of the victims and the witness is gonna stay safe? And so that's one example where we decided not to go ahead and not to provide expertise. We do it in a way that is normally constructive, saying if you meet those criteria, we'll be happy to help you uh, in the future, and uh, that's that's how we present uh, we present it. Um, there is maybe really one element that I can add, and that we have developed over time, in some countries where we have worked quite extensively with the prosecutor civil society. We try to combine the expertise by deploying the expertise to several actors simultaneously who can help each other. Let me give you an example with Colombia. Uh, In Colombia, we have been helping the uh, Special Jurisdiction for Peace in developing their approach to investigate uh, sexual and gender-based violence violations, especially and also against um, uh, sexual minorities. And at the same time, we were providing expertise to a civil society organization, which was supporting male and boys survivors of sexual violence to register uh, with the special jurisdictions for for peace so that they can fully take part in the proceedings there. So you see where this support is sort of meeting in one point where we advance the justice process from two different sides. And uh, yes, that's how we we are uh, doing our best to support a very complex (laughs) process.
1: I know that a lot of it is, is based on invitation, but I'm curious about um, the timing that you use. You know, there's there's this interesting tension in international justice, and I think you've touched on part of it already with the example you provided, where um, we're often frustrated on behalf of survivors that justice takes too long, uh, but there's also simultaneously a lot of criticism from member states towards civil society um, saying that we're engaging on justice too early, ahead of a negotiated peace, um, ahead of a ceasefire. Um, so when does the justice work begin uh, for you?
0: So in in my opinion, um, it should start as early as possible. And my, my answer will not surprise you. And this is um, linked to a number of factors. Um, including about the preservation of evidence, the fact that uh, it's important to engage early on. And I would have maybe two comments or two reflections on this. The first one is what I mentioned before, uh, the role of civil society organizations has shifted or changed over time. And increasingly, we see civil society organization engaging not only for blaming and shaving, shaming or advocacy work, but also to actually collect evidence, preserve them, and with the intention to bring them in front of a justice process or a human rights mechanism for that matter. And so what is interesting is that this role is increasingly acknowledged by institutions, including by the the ICC, for instance, who has just released uh, some guidance for civil society organizations who wants to engage in uh, documenting information. And very often, these organizations are the first one on the ground. And I think it's really important to be able to provide support to them so that they start that um, that documentation work with the right questions in mind. And so that's what we have we have we have been doing. Uh, not not enough, I'm sure, but we are we are doing. And I can give you the example of Yazda. This is an organization that has been working uh, early on uh, when the uh, genocide against the Yazidi and other minorities in Iraq happened. So they started documenting. Uh, and writing down stories that survivors were uh, uh, telling them. And then they fairly the early approached Justice Rapid Response because they felt the need to structure the documentation works and they needed to develop an understanding of where that documentation work could be useful. So, over a number of years, we have been helping them structure that with a number of different experts, like people specialized in interviewing, people specialized in managing databases. And then the result of that work and the work of others, it's not exclusively us, but of that work, has been some of the trials that you have seen in Germany in the past few years, whereby Yazda was able to provide some critical piece of information and evidence to those prosecutors that have led to uh, some justice for the Yazidi uh, survivors. So you see, with that example, it's really important to take it early on it does raise a lot of questions, a lot of questions, like to which standard do you document? How do you avoid uh, multiple interviews by the same organizations? How do you work with donors so that they don't push organization into doing siloed work only about sexual violence, uh, for example? How do you make sure that what is collected is admissible? And, and you will know as I do that, for instance, when a civil society organization is collecting information, uh, you don't necessarily know where it's going to end. So there is a whole question about informed consent of the persons they have interviewed. So there is a whole range of questions there that are really important. And if we can help with expertise to make it more efficient, more professional, ask the right question, I think it's a really valuable contribution.
1: That's a that's a good point. And I know that that has been a concern with um, countries like Ukraine, for example, where there was a ton of... Um, international enthusiasm at the start of the conflict and I think a lot of that sort of went towards wanting to help people on the ground document um, what was happening but there were so many organizations rushing to the area to provide guidance and um, that there have been big concerns about you know repeat documentation or re-victimization of um populations and traumatization uh, related to interviewing them over and over again.
0: Just a, one point about the question of of coordination. And I think that's one big topic in our sector of work that we still need to somehow figure out. We saw in Ukraine that there was efforts to coordinate among organizations. They have created two coalitions, tried to work on a similar databases, uh, develop some relationship with a prosecutor to understand how they could use the information But this is a very complex issue. And because there is not one organization who would claim to coordinate all the others, because every situation is different. In Ukraine, you have a national prosecutor that is actually by law in charge of those investigations. Whereas in other countries, you might have no functioning judiciary, you could potentially be playing that role of coordination. So I need I think there is a need in our sector to have a deeper reflection of this question of coordination in really crowded spaces like Ukraine, like we have seen in Cox's Bazaar and other situations. And there is a lot of work to be done in that field. Our contribution for now on this is really to make sure that when we deploy expertise, we would coordinate with the requesting entity and ask questions about how do you use the information, how do you share it. But again, there is a lot of work to be done around that topic.
1: Yeah. And I imagine, you know, you mentioned countries where there's no judiciary. I imagine it's also complicated, um, in countries where the space for civil society to even operate is shrinking significantly, and both their ability to collect evidence as well as their ability to provide provide for their own safety is um, becoming more and more limited
0: no that's that's yeah that's a very important point the because the safety the safety and the security of these uh, documenters collectors uh, defenders is just critical as well so um what is interesting is uh, uh, we might um, I hope we'll be discussing about this but the question of the digital mean of investigation that remove a bit of pressure on actually interviewing uh and allow for some remote uh, uh type of evidence collection are interesting complement to some of the work that's being done on the ground so that that's maybe a, in that context an interesting discussion to have
1: I think another another important element of your work I'd like to discuss is how do you implement um a victim centered approach I know it's part of you know the work with people on the ground but there's much more to it
0: I think that's that's um, that's really central to our work um and I will it's a very big topic so I I can try to summarize it in f- sort of four points that for us are uh, the most important ones I mentioned the engagement criteria that we have. So when we receive the request, we check first whether there is a detrimental effect or a risk for victims and survivors. So that's one way for us to at least at that sort of bottom line where we say we don't engage if there is a risk for survivors that we cannot mitigate. The second aspect is the recruitment of experts. So we are taking great care in the vetting process, the background checks to make sure that experts that we are certifying or onboarding on the JR roster are aware and up to date and able to apply the guidance, the guidelines and the standards that are pertaining to protecting victims and making sure that they are, um, that they are safe. And this is just... The minimum standard I just described to you, right? Because there is more to it. So the two other elements that we are implementing is the first one is we have tried with our partners, including UN Women, to push systematically a gender lens through those investigations that we were supporting. And so you know that some categories of persons and some type of violations are typically underreported or neglected. Among them, and less and less so because this has become a big topic, uh, sexual and gender-based violence, but there is another one that we are really pushing now, which is violations against children, because there is a ton of questions about investigating violations against children. Do you interview children? Do you bring them in front of a court of law? Is it re traumatizing? Do you have to ask for the permission of parents? So it's complicated. And the, the result of that is that 30% of the population, meaning the children, are often neglected when it comes to in investigating international crimes and grave human rights violations. So what we do is that systematically we build the roster with experts on those topics and we deploy them to these investigative mechanism so that from the very beginning of the investigation those aspects are actually factored in the investigation planning, be it human rights or be it uh, criminal justice. And finally, the last point I would say is really the, the adoption by justice rapid response of a broad understanding of what justice means. Because especially when it comes to mass atrocity crimes, you will have thousands of victims, one or two perpetrators uh, held accountable uh, a few years down the line. And you need something else to bring a feeling and an impression of justice to uh, the victims and the survivors. So you need truth, you need reparation, you need restorative justice. All these tools are super important and we are engaging in all of them. The the good example is uh, recently we have deployed a restorative justice expert uh, to the special jurisdiction for peace in Colombia to help organize the meetings between perpetrators and victims and survivors in a way that would be non-traumatizing that would help push forward the restorative dimension of that justice approach and this was this is new i mean they are they are creating something completely new and we are really happy to uh, be contributing to that with some expertise from the
1: roster This sort of broad understanding of justice is something that's often missed by policymakers. Um, You know, this, this idea of um, transitional justice and working with communities to sort of think about what the needs of victims are um, beyond just punishment and imprisonment of perpetrators. Uh, We know, and sort of, think of as an ideal dream is helpful to sort of just restoring a society as a whole, Um, and yet not enough effort is put into that in most conflict situations.
0: It's it's interesting to see that, that that topic is really emerging now in all the discussions in our sector of work. Why is justice made? Who is it made for or with and I think this is a really important shift, another one that uh, we observe and very, very important and very valuable one.
1: In terms of um, other shifts that you've seen in recent years, I'm I'm curious about what way is Justice Rapid Response is able to leverage new and emerging technologies as a tool um, for investigation and, and documentation?
0: Yeah, I think that's an enormous uh, shift. Like, the, <laughs> I think we are still wrapping our head around the potential the risks and uh, so for us maybe three or four years ago we realized that this is something that's coming and that will stay any investigation into international crimes and human rights violation will actually imply some level of technology and digital investigative means and so we have started slowly to onboard this kind of expertise on the roster as well. And we saw at the same time the number of requests for this type of expertise uh, increasing. So, like, I give you a few examples. Like, we increasingly have requests for open source investigators, people who can really understand the Berkeley protocol, how does that work, how you authenticate that information. A lot of requests for database, uh, setting up a database that would allow you to manage your information, potentially analyze it as well. I gave you the example of Yazda. That was one example where we could support that. But also like high tech stuff, like we got requests and we deployed in the Maldives persons able to manage data points from GSM um, uh, antennas or facial comparison persons using software to try to identify persons on on video footages. So we know that this is something that's going to really grow (laughs) in the future. The challenge with that is that First, where do you find those experts? Second, how do you make sure that using that kind of technology is also going to be focusing on a victim-centric approach? How everything that we learned, I mean, the Murat Code, the standards, the victim-centric approach, how do you translate that into this type of investigation or investigation, investigative mean? And I think that's the challenge. There is very little policy actually around those questions, right? There is the Berkeley Protocol had been really an extraordinary piece of work only on open source investigation. So it's only one area, but there is much more to develop around that question. So our ambition at Justice Rapid Response is to first increase the number of experts that we have on the roster in this field, train them about all the standards that we discussed before, victim-centric approach, victim protection etc. But I think we need to do more than that, because this will not be enough. I think we need to identify the players out there who have developed tools and databases and mechanisms that could contribute and help uh, use digital investigation means into investigation, and try to build some sort of community of practice where we can not only pull uh, them into investigation where they are needed, but also reflect on all these policy dimensions. And I, I cannot hide from you that there is a fairly big ambition on our side to really be able to create and build that community of practice with all the actors who have actually contributed so far to this. It's really important.
1: Yeah, it's important and it's it's hard to keep up with, I feel. Everything is is changing so rapidly. I remember earlier in my career it, at the start of the conflict in Syria was roughly when smartphones were proliferating at a rapid rate and we were getting video footage, you know, taken by people on the streets of what was happening there. And no one really knew like how to corroborate whether the videos were true, what, what videos to keep, how to document them, how to store them, you know, and now years later, it seems everyone has a smartphone um, and we have satellite imagery, we have all sorts of new tools, and it's just constantly developing. Um, And some of it can be very useful and powerful, but also, you know, with AI and other things, some of it can also be distorted um, in very problematic ways.
0: And and Jacqueline, you you just mentioned, I think there's there's also this, today, the same questions that you just mentioned are still there. Like, where, where do you where do you put pictures that you have taken on your phone uh, when you have them how to not lose information in the background so that they can be authenticated who is going to use them these are really complex questions and uh, things are evolving very rapidly and I I hope in the right direction and that's why we are keeping our our eye on this really because we want to be contributing to that in a way that is still victim centered still protective of persons and with an aim to make a justice that is satisfactory for them
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and would be grateful if you left us a review. For more information on the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, and populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at www.globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.